Welcome to the Tuesday night Bible study. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We just prayed a second ago. And uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he's, Paul is dealing with the Corinthian church, which has all kinds of problems. And in a sense, it's good that they do, not for the problem's sake, but because we, our churches, we get to benefit from hearing Paul's advice, Christ's advice on these issues. They have um, turned a blind eye to some sin going on in their church in a variety of ways, one of which is we learn in the beginning of chapter five that there's somebody in their church who's uh, got sexual immorality happening on a habitual basis, and the person has, whatever that means, married to or living with his father's wife. This was something that was not only condemned by the Greek and the Roman society, but it was illegal as well. Same with the Jews. So they're just turning a blind eye to it, and uh, that's their business. We have freedom in Christ kind of thing. So Paul's saying, if he won't repent, you have to expel him from the church for a number of reasons we discussed last week. Um, then he clarifies something. Look at verse 9 of chapter 5. Those of you that are here in person, so I know that you're awake, say amen. Amen. Good one. And those of you on Zoom, wave or say amen or hold up that amen sign. I love it. Okay. Um, look at verse 9 of chapter 5. I'm just giving you the context. We're going to really pick it up at verse 12, but he writes in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And he's now he's going to clarify. He didn't mean all sexually immoral people. He meant people that claim that they're Christians who are living perpetual sexually immoral lives. Verse 10, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, in other words, unbelievers, or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world, he says, kind of tongue in cheek. But verse 11, now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or a sister, meaning that says they're Christians, and yet they're not living their faith in perpetual sin, habitual sin. Um, they say they're a brother or sister, but they're sexually immoral or greedy and idolater, slanderer, drunkard, or swindler. Um, a, a list similar to that is going to come up tonight in chapter six, by the way. He says, don't even eat with such people. Have nothing to do with them. Don't fellowship with them. The idea is not just shunning for shunning's sake. The idea is to make the person miss the fellowship, miss being a part of a church, miss the sort of covering spiritually that is around people that are in a church and want to come back. In, in, a, in shorter form, the goal is restoration, that the person would repent and come back and say, boy, you know what? I'm so glad I'm in a church that calls out sin. I'm repenting of that and coming back kind of thing. Verse 12, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? By the way, we're in chapter five. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church, meaning unbelievers? Are you not to judge those inside? Now that doesn't, in other words, what he's saying is, and, and you, may, you and I may do this. We, we, before you got here, most of you, six or eight of us had a discussion about the halftime show at the Super Bowl, about the Grammys and the extreme immorality, sin, just plain evil that goes on. And we see that and it's abhorrent to us, but 
we can't really judge that because they're not believers. Do you know what I'm saying? It doesn't mean they don't get judged. They do, right? God judges them. Um, but he's saying uh, in verse 12, what business, business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? But aren't you supposed to judge those inside? First Peter 4.17 says that judgment begins with the most evil people. No. You know what it says? begins at the house of God. We're, we have a higher standard. We know God's will because of the Bible. We're, we are judged more harshly in a sense. Judgment begins with the house of God. We know right from wrong. So indirectly, most scholars think he's mentioning, he's explaining indirectly why he just said, get this man out of your church who's living with his father's wife and he never mentioned did you notice the woman and the thought is that woman is not a believer and so that's why he's mentioning what business is it of mine to judge people outside the church but it, you should judge those inside it doesn't mean that we go around with binoculars and telescopes looking for any little area of sin or look at those shoes he's wearing that's sinful that can get a little ridiculous right but when someone's living in blatant sin and it's habitual not slipped once a month ago you can't let that go in a church for a number of reasons i'm going to reserve talking more about that because we did last week and we're going to talk about it again when we start into chapter six um, the view from the outside looking in. I'll just give you a little hint. So we're not to wink at sin. By the way, it's not loving to do so. Oh, we're a very loving and permissive church, very progressive. We let those things go here. We're not judgmental. That's not loving. That's not biblical. I'd rather be in a church where they call me out if I'm drunk three nights a week at the bar and they see my car there at 1 a.m. I'd rather be in a church that says, Somebody approaches me and says, we feel like you're sinning here. What's going on? Oh, I'm just witnessing to people I'm drinking. That's all. <laughs> okay, sure. Anyway, judging, we talked about this last week, you remember. Um, judging involves more than just confrontation. Um, it involves uh, disciplining, but the goal is always to restore the person to fellowship and to repentance, getting his relationship vertically right with God, horizontally right with his church. Um, let's dive into chapter six. Some of you are already asleep, but that's all right. Um, chapter six, first Corinthians. So he's going to continue the discipline discussion here with a little different angle. Um, a lax view of sin, um, other inconsistencies. Mainly, it's about lawsuits between Christians. What it's not about is unsaved people suing each other. It's also not about one saved person being in a lawsuit against an unbeliever. He doesn't cover that. What's going on is the Greek culture, okay, this is Greece, the Greek culture, and even the Roman culture, but especially the Greek culture was very litigious. That's a $20 word. It just means they love to sue people. They'll sue you for anything. And they had learned, as we have in this country, unfortunately, that you can sue for some ridiculous reasons and make some money. 
oh, I slipped and fell on your property. And why don't we just settle out of court? Why don't you just make it a hundred grand and we'll forget the whole thing. And it became sort of a racket. Well, the problem is you would expect that in the outside world, but this is happening inside a church where one believer is suing another believer or vice versa. And they are going outside the church to the secular courts that met in the, they called it the Bema seat, not the one biblically, but that's what they called it, the judgment seat in the marketplace. Some, uh, the Greeks loved law, like LA law would have been very popular if they had TVs, all those old, you know, Perry Mason, all those old shows, I'm showing my age now. Um, they loved lawsuits so much that lawsuits always had a big audience of people watching. Some cases had a hundred people on a jury. There were cases that had over a thousand people on the jury. They loved to sue. They would just sue for anything. Keep in mind, this is a Christian church, but it's only been in operation four years. And the world, the way they had learned the way the world works, all the immorality and the lawsuits, it was still creeping into the church. So let's read verse one and then we'll uh, dive in. By the way, there's a lot of rhetorical questions where he's just asking a question rhetorically for their answer kind of thing. Let me just see if my notes have anything else to say here. Um, okay. Yeah. So what's happening is they're rapidly losing their standing or testimony in Corinth because of the ridiculous stuff they're allowing that the outside world sees. Okay. Verse one. Uh, let's see. If any of you has a dispute, that's a lawsuit, with another do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Okay, so that's what he's introducing the subject by saying, if you have a dispute, let's say Jeff here has a dispute with Ken back there, and they can't seem to come to terms. So what are they doing? They are taking that to the courts, and the people know that they come to the church here. Remember we said in Corinth, there was one church. That's the way it was in, when Christianity was young. Um, so he, he says, do you dare? It's hard to tell whether it's a question or a statement that they're doing this. They're suing each other. In other words, some translations have the word neighbor there, meaning your fellow Christian. Um, okay, in this section, by the way, the unrighteous or unbelievers contrasts with the believers. He's saying we're not, just like them. Um, so they were wronged in some way. They go to court. Um, yeah, lawsuits were always public knowledge. They were even sort of advertised. People knew what was happening. Oh, so-and-so suing so-and-so. Let's go to that. Remember, there's no movies and what have you. Um, let's see. The, the word in verse 1, do you dare take it before the unrighteous or the ungodly? It's literally unjust which is interesting because you want justice, right, in a court. Um, in other words, they're, they're unsaved. Their judges are unsaved. Well, you might say yes, but they've studied law. They're ex more experienced at it kind of thing. Okay, well, we're going we're gonna to see if that holds any water. Um, so they were very, very sue happy, these people. Look at verse 2. Or do you not know 
that the Lord's people, that's Christians, saved believers, do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? If you're not, if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Okay. Is it trivial if there's a dispute between two brothers? They might not think so, right? Might be for $1,000 or $100,000 or something major. You caused this injury to me in some way. But in the grand scheme of eternity, when it talks about us judging the world and ruling over the world, that's eternity. It's a much bigger judgment, is it not? Um, as opposed to the temporariness of whatever they're disputing the two brothers are. So what he's saying in verse two is that Christians are capable of judging their own matters, okay? By the way, the words, do you not know or do you know appear six times in this chapter. Don't you know? Christians are going to judge the world. Before the chapter's over, we're gonna find out that Christians will judge, wait for it, angels. He's saying, because of the high calling that you have in your destiny in the future, doesn't that tell you that because you have the Holy Spirit of God, who is smarter than a thousand judges from Harvard Law School, right? Don't you know, don't you have someone in your church who could mediate between the two believers? And by doing that, listen, keep the dirty laundry of the church in-house as opposed to advertised to the world. What else you're advertising to the world, if they have a dispute and they don't do it in-house in the church, they go to the law courts. We are exposing our dirty laundry. We're dragging Christ's name, Christianity's name through the mud, right? And they, they see that their judgment is viewed by Christians as higher than our own judgment. And again, I say, we have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us. That's the, the point of verse two. Look at it again. Uh, don't you know that we're going to judge the world? We'll talk more about that in a second. Um, aren't you, if you're going to do that, aren't you competent to judge trivial cases? They're not living up to their position in Christ. Um, yeah, verse three talks about the fallen angels. Um, the word ju judge can mean rule over or preside over the world. We saw that, didn't we, when we studied the book of Revelation, Christ returns and sets up a millennial kingdom where we reign and rule with him and in some way assist in the judgment. Uh, look at verse three. By the way, they're, they're very... Uh, conceited about their spiritual gifts. He mentions that a lot, especially chapter 12, 13, and 14. And he's saying, you think you're so gifted, and yet when it comes to a simple matter between two brothers or two sisters, you can't work it out in-house. Um, verse 3, do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life, from the greater to the lesser. If we're going to judge angels, if we're going to rule and reign with Christ, if we have the Spirit of God living inside us, what message does it send to the world that we're, we're taking the case out to their court? Another thing it sends to the world is those Christians can't get along. They're always fighting. They're both believers. Okay, Jesus in John 17, twice 
um, talks about, let's turn there real fast. That'll keep you awake. First Corinthians, take a left and go maybe three books to the left. Uh, John 17 is the high priestly prayer of Christ. We get to eavesdrop as Jesus talks to his father. It's pretty amazing. The rest of the times, most of the time when Jesus prays, we just read that he went off and prayed. And wouldn't you love to sit in on that and hear what he's saying? Well, we get to here. Look at verse, I think it's 11. He's talking to the, um, yeah, he's talking to the father, verse 11. I will, be, I will remain in the world no longer, but they, believers, the apostles, the few believers there are, are still in the world. I'm coming to you. He's talking to his father. Jesus is. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. The name you gave me, here it comes, so that they may be what? One. Just as we are one. Now go to same chapter. I think it's verse 20. Two. No, look at verse 21. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Um, and he says it again in 22. That they may be one as we are one. God, you can go back to 1 Corinthians. God wants us to be, what's the relationship? Brother, sister, right? Under God's family. I don't know about you, but when our kids were little, we hated it when our kids fought. Nothing worse. God wants us to get along and be uh, brothers, act as family members. He's about to talk about that some more too. Um, let's see. Uh, gosh, do we want to go there now? Yeah, I think we do. Another detour. All the way to the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7. So if you can't find Daniel... It's kind of go to the middle of the Bible, you know, Psalms, and keep turning to the right past Isaiah and Ezekiel, and you'll come to Daniel. We won't be here long. If you can't find Daniel, that's okay. Chapter 7 is what we want. Way back in Daniel, chapter 7, verse 18. Um, but the saints of the Most High, that's believers, will, future, receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Now look at verse 22, same chapter. Until the ancient of days, that's God the Father, came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came where they possessed, ruled, in other words, the kingdom. Now go to verse 27. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints. The people of the Most High, his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. All rulers will worship and obey him. Saints are involved in judging the world. Jude 6 also talks about this, the sixth verse of, of that one chapter. Um, let's see. One more, Revelation 3, since we're taking detours. Go to Revelation 3, verse 21. Way at the back of the Bible, Revelation 3, verse 21. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down on my father's throne. So there's a ruling and a reigning and an even a judgment that believers are involved with. This is the only place, back to 1 Corinthians 6, only place in the New Testament where we learn that we will judge angels. Okay, let's talk about that. There's two kinds of angels, good angels 
and fallen angels. Fallen angels are demons, right? Satan is a former angel who's the most fallen of all the fallen angels. Believers in some sense will assist Christ and God in judging, not the good angels, there's nothing to judge, in fallen angels and their judgment, demons, if you will, um, in the millennial kingdom kind of thing. He's saying because of that high calling you have, that you're one day going to be higher than angels, can't you judge your petty little problems? Um, Jesus talks in the book of John about the fact that believers are supposed to love one another, and he even uses that and he's, as a, um, a sort of a badge of honor in the way that he says, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What's implied in that is if you don't love one another and you're always fighting, it doesn't present Christianity in a positive light or in the correct light for that matter. Um, okay, back to the text. Do you know that we, in verse 3, we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, verse 4, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? They're unbelievers. They're perpetually sinning, unsaved. They don't know God. They don't know his law. Why would you do that? The Jews, by the way, did the same thing, kept everything in house. They would let a, a trusted rabbi, someone that was a teacher in that, a scribe in that synagogue or the temple, decide the fate of the two people in some sort of a mediation uh, type of thing. Uh, so it's a poor testimony to the lost. Um, it says that Christians can't get along. Verse, uh, I'm just reading notes here. Yeah, verse five. I say this to your shame or to shame you. Is it possible that there's nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? In the whole church, there isn't one person you feel that's wise enough that they could both agree, yes, let's let Boyce here decide our case. They would present it. It stays in-house. Obviously, because it's a church, you know what else would happen? They would all bow their heads and pray, God, we want your justice, your will to be done here. And maybe they, the whole thing would just go away and they'd shake hands and go, you know what? Forget it. Now, uh, there is a higher calling that believers have. Okay? And it bothers Western Christians. And that's Jesus' teaching. Do you remember? If somebody strikes you on the cheek, punch him back harder, right? You've read that, haven't you? Oh, no? It's not in there? That's in the book of Illusions, chapter 4. You know what it says? Offer him the other cheek. Turn the other cheek. If somebody takes you to court and sues you for your shirt, do you remember? Give him your coat as well. You say, that's not fair. And you know what? It's not. But he's saying, where are your priorities? Are you that concerned about the coat and the shirt or the slap on the cheek? Or do you want to be more like your heavenly father, like your master, the Lord Jesus Christ, who dies basically with nothing, right? And yet he had everything. 
He's saying all those things are going to burn. They're temporary. It's not worth creating that much anxiety over. There are cases where you're going to end up in court with an unbeliever. That's different. But with a believer, you go to the pastor. Um, John MacArthur tells a story where there was someone from their church being sued by a Christian from another church. And they quoted this verse to them and got elders from both churches to come together with the two parties. They prayed. They totally worked it out. Never went to court. Lawyers, all that. Solemnly swear with the Bible. Do they still do that? I don't even know. Anyway, let's keep rolling. Uh, let's see. Instead, verse 6, one brother takes another brother to court. And this in front of unbelievers. What message does that send? That you, we don't have enough godly wisdom to mediate this, but we trust unbelievers who have more wisdom. That's what we're basically saying. Verse 6, uh, sorry, verse 7. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? What I was just saying, let it go. Yes, but I was wronged. Why not rather be cheated? Remember the verses we just quoted. I quoted them too early, but that's where they come up in verse 7. In Matthew 18, most of you know, there are verses of starting in verse 15 that deal with how do we handle church discipline. It mainly involves a brother, we'll call him Harold over here, who's coming to the church and is very involved, but we all know he's an adulterer. He's cheating on his wife, or he's got a gambling problem, or he's a drunk, or he's a drug addict, or he's a thief, or whatever it may be. Perpetually sinning. The way to deal with that in Matthew 18, without turning there, because we've done enough detours for now, I'll just tell you is, you're supposed to go to him, one person, brother, sister, whoever it is, I love you in Christ, I know you're a believer, but I see this as sin. If the guy says, you know what, you're right, You've won your brother or sister back, and he's going to repent. Let's say he says, get lost. Uh, it's not that bad. Matthew 18 says, Jesus' words, you're supposed to come back with one or two other people from the church. So I grab a couple of elders and a deacon maybe, and we go see Harold again. And we all believe that this is sin, Harold. And Harold says, I don't care or it's not that bad, or whatever, he makes excuses. The next thing is you're supposed to bring it before the entire church. And if he doesn't repent then, you're supposed to do what he suggested in chapter 5 with the guy married to his father's wife, which is expel him, kick him out of the church, excommunicate him. It's not ha-ha-ha, it's so that he'll repent, so that he'll be restored. So... Um, Paul, by the way, in Acts 22 and in 25, we learn, was not against all legal action. He appealed to Rome in court twice because he was a Roman citizen and appealed to Caesar. Do you remember that? Using the courts. Because they're not Christians, he is. Um, so Matthew 18, yeah. Uh, we already talked about that. Let's keep rolling. We're doing great. Are you still awake? Say amen. Amen. Okay, beautiful. Um, so he's saying, you've, in verse 7, you've already failed. You're clinging to your rights, and you're, you're giving Christianity a black eye. You're giving Christ a black eye. Remember who we represent. Uh, it's better to lose. That's Matthew 5, by the way, what I was quoting. Better to lose money or possessions than to blue, lose a brother, lose your testimony. 
let's see. Christianity teaches we are to go the extra mile. We are to give the cloak also, turn the other cheek. He's also saying with prayer, we're trusting God to work this out. Believe me, the courts, the secular courts, the judge isn't saying, I've heard the case, or the jury isn't saying, we're going to go pray about your case now. They're not going to do that, right? But the people in Corinth knew, I can get more money maybe from a secular court. Uh, completely wrong. Verse 8, instead you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. He's admitting that there is some cheating and bad behavior going on. Uh, maybe because they've let so much sin go uh, in this church, but he's reminding them it's a family, uh, the whole thing. It's worse when it's uh, done to Christians, but it's way worse than that when it's done by with two Christians doing it. Verse 9, or do you not know, another rhetorical question, that wrongdoers, evildoers, will not inherit the kingdom of God? He's saying, I want you to see how serious the sin problem is. Wrongdoers, what do you mean by that? People that have sinned occasionally? No, these are people that are whose lives are defined by the terms we're about to hear. It's a perpetual, ongoing continuation of sin, habit kind of sin. Um, verse 9, do you, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? It's a salvation issue if they continue. Notice the next phrase, do not be deceived. Do you know why that's in there? Because it's easy to be deceived. There is such a thing as Christian, listen, liberty. Galatians is all about this. We're in Christ. We used to be under the law, Jewish Christians. We used to be under the law. Don't do this, do, don't do that. Make sure you do this, make sure you eat this, don't eat that. Now we're not under the law, we're under grace. Some people interpret that as, I'm saved. Spirituality is all that matters. What do you mean? I mean, I'm saved spiritually with God. What I do with my body, God doesn't really care. Money and all that stuff. He's going to give you a list. It's not exhaustive. And there's about six or seven of these lists in the New Testament, a list of sinful practices that will keep a person out of heaven. Don't you know that wrongdoers, that's a general term, evildoers, people that's, that sin perpetually, won't inherit the kingdom of God. Translation, they're not saved. They're going to hell. They're going to be judged. Okay. Do not be deceived. I'm still in verse 9. And here comes the list. Neither the, and there's all kinds of words here, depending on which translation you have. I have NIV. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor, okay, this is where we're going to have to come back and talk about homosexuality, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkens, drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's it. Like I said, if your particular sin is not in there, don't go, I'm okay. He didn't mention drug use. It's all good. Okay. That's not an exhaustive list. He's saying these sorts of people whose lives are characterized by being a drunk or greedy or what have you. <clears throat> Some of these things were involved in the lawsuits that the, that the Christians were doing. Okay. Um, by the way, Jesus explains in Matthew 5 
who will inherit the kingdom, um, the poor in spirit, all of that. We've talked about that before. But Paul's telling you the kinds of people who won't. Cheating a brother, um, you get eternity outside of the presence of God. That's what he's saying. <clears throat> it puts you in bad company with all those. Okay. Um, we already talked about that. Okay. Here, the, here comes the list. The sexually immoral. Some translations have the word fornicators. Okay. There's two terms for sexual sin. Actually, there's more, but the two main ones for heterosexuals are fornication and adultery. We talked about this last week. Fornication. What does it mean? It means sex before marriage. Unmarried person having sex, period. Any kind of sex, period. Adultery, married person having sex with someone that's not their spouse. Pretty simple, right? Either one, your life is characterized by that, unforgiven by the Lord because you're not um, repenting, um, you're not going to inherit the kingdom. You're not going to be saved. A general term for sexual sin. He's going to have more to say about that further down in this chapter. Um, let's see. Go back to the list. Sexually immoral. Idolaters. We talked about this last week because a similar list came up in the previous chapter. What's an idolater? What's idolatry? Idolatry is making anything into your God that isn't God. Or it's also saying something about God that is not true. That's more blasphemy, but idolatry is making anything else God. We already, uh, we already talked about in Corinth, they had the temple of Aphrodite, um, a, an amazing structure up on a hill where the, they would go and worship pagan gods, especially the god Aphrodite. There were a thousand temple prostitutes, both male, by the way, and female. And you could worship by having sex with one of the prostitutes. I know that seems like, how can that be? But leave it to mankind to make sin. Oh, I'm worshiping, honey. Really, I'll be back at 2 a.m., but I'm going there to worship. Yeah, right. Idolaters, um, we in the West think of idolaters as people that are, that are primitive, that he's bowing down to an idol. He's bowing down to some carved image. Is that idolatry? It is. But may I say that in Colossians, Paul equates, listen, greed with idolatry, where the idol is what? Stuff, money, um, material goods, wealth, being wealthier than somebody else kind of thing. Idolatry is anything that you put on your list of priorities higher than God. It can even be, because money's a good thing. You can do good things with money. It can be money. It can even be even better things like, listen, family. With no family, God wants us to love our families, not more than he wants us to love him. So if you love your wife or your husband or your kids or your parents or your sister more than you love God, that's an idol to you in a sense. There's also all the idolatry, of course, of sports figures and movie stars and all of that people screaming and uh, it gets pretty crazy, right? Idolatry, uh, anything in the place of God. Um, next one, I adulterers, already talked about that. Okay, now the next terms, there are two, involve homosexuality, depending on your translation that you have there. Two different Greek words. Um, anybody here have King James? 
translation. Would, would you read just the part of after idolaters um, at the end of verse nine, nice and loud, and I'll repeat it for the Zoom people. Thank you. Nor effeminate or, or abusers of themselves with mankind. Okay. Two different categories, both of, thank you. Both of those things are homosexuality, okay? Effeminate were men who dressed as women. Is that happening today in America? Just a little teeny bit um, to where you can get on a women's sports team and beat all the girls in swimming because I identify as a woman. <clears throat> if you identify as a woman and you're a man, there's a term for that. It's illness right? If I identify as a horse uh, or as a chicken, whatever, you, uh, go lay an egg, but you're not a chicken. Something's wrong. If you think you're something, you're not. <clears throat> Effeminate were the prostitutes, the male prostitutes. 13 of the 14 first emperors of Rome were all homosexuals. Nero married, wait for it, a little boy who he called his wife and an older man who he called his husband. You think, or people think, you probably don't. Well, you know, I like the Bible, but some things are so outdated. We've grown beyond this fear of homosexuality. And listen, it was worse then. It's, we're just catching up now in 2023. Um, Socrates, the famous uh, philosopher, Plato, both, wait for it, homosexuals. Um, Nero, yeah, married a boy named Sporus, S-P-O-R-U-S, as his wife and a man named Pythatoras, who he called his husband. Uh, so he's equating these sins, and by the way, be honest, you may look at homosexuality and think, well, that's a really bad sin. But it's in the list with drunkards, greedy, thieves, right? Covetous, King James has, I believe. All these things. Okay, so the homosexual community has seen this scripture and said what he's condemning is homosexuals that are abusive to their partner. Nothing could be further from the truth. If you look in Leviticus, it, it's all over the Old Testament and the New. Homosexuality is a sin uh, according to God. You can't get away from it. Um, we already talked about that. The other one, abusers of themselves with mankind, is the dominant, the male, the customer, if you will. Um, Arsenokoitai in Greek, and I probably butchered, butchered that. Uh, Malakoi. Uh, is the other term for um, the effeminate ones. In fact, there's an island in Hawaii called Molokai. No, forget it. That doesn't. I just threw that in. Um, yeah. Okay. So uh, we live in an age when there are, I just heard the number. I can't think of what it was. I heard on the radio either yesterday or today that in, in the U.S. there are and it was a number, I don't remember, 161 genders. Hello? LGBTQ, you have letters like all the way out to the parking lot, right? 
There's two genders, folks. God ordained marriage, listen, one man, one woman. Okay, so this is a list of people who live this way, okay? Now, if it sounds so judgmental that there's no hope for them, then you haven't read the next verse, but we're not there yet. So that we've got the homosexuals in verse nine. By the way, Romans one talks about a progression of evil. And if you read Romans one, when you go home tonight, you see that the more people say no to God, no Bible, no Jesus, the more their sin degenerates. And what it it comes to in Romans one is homosexuality between men, homosexuality between women, lesbianism. Is that just as wrong? Yes, it is. Okay. Um, okay, let's finish the sex, the, the, not sex, but the sin list. Verse 10, thieves. I'm okay on that one. Are you? Have you stolen anything? Have you stolen from the government? I don't report everything on my taxes, but that's between you and God. There's a verse in the Old Testament that talks about robbing, wait for it, God, robbing God. Well, everything's his. And yes, but if you don't give to your church, and don't worry, we're not going to take a collection or anything, but if you don't give to your church, you are in a sense robbing God. Okay, made you feel guilty there. All right, um, let's keep going with the list. Uh, thieves, nor the greedy. Does King James have covetous for that word? Yes. Same kind of thing. Greedy people are covetous. They're already always coveting, wishing they had something that they don't, that's not theirs. Um, nor drunkards. Do you see that there? That includes anything that alters your consciousness. Yes, drugs. Yes, illegal drugs. And yes, pharmaceutical drugs if you get addicted to them. Elvis died because he was addicted to legal drugs, but he got addicted, right? We can talk about addiction in a little while. Um, drunkards, these are the people that cannot escape the, and all of these things, by the way, are addictive, okay? All of them to one degree or another. Drunkards, if you know anything about drinking, you know that the first time you drink, it doesn't take very much and you get drunk. And then the human body gets acclimated to alcohol and you need more and more and more and more to get drunk, right? And then if you stop drinking and then 10 years go by and you have that much of something, you find, wow, it's a big difference, isn't it? Um, we should have an open bar here, don't you think? All right, nor slanderers. Um, revilers is also in some of the translations. These are um, people that are uh, spreading lies about others to ruin their reputation, whether it's to ad advance themselves higher than that person or just to hurt someone. Um, slanderers, revilers. What's included here? Gossip. Uh, nor swindlers. These are extortioners, some translations have from white collar crime all the way down to common thieves, pickpockets, whatever. He's saying sin is sin. And sin that is not dealt with through the Holy Spirit and repented of will keep a person out of 
heaven. Um, again, these are not occasional slips. These are people that do these things as a way of life. It's a habit. Um, we already, yeah, talked about that. One commentator wrote, a lifestyle of habitual sin, listen, begins with one time, right? I'm just going to do it once. And then, okay, maybe once more and that's it. You're hooked. Time to move away from that stuff. Um, as we said, the list isn't exhaustive. Similar lists, if you get the notes that I send out, you'll see the list. Galatians 5, Ephesians 5, 1 Timothy 1, Revelation 9, 21, 22, Proverbs 6, Exodus 20, which is the Ten Commandments. Several places in the Bible you can go to see lists of sins. I guess if you put them all together, you get a much better idea. But we know what's sin, don't we? Now we go back to planet Earth. This is a church where a, a guy may have cheated his Christian sister or brother, right? And he needs to see his life in the grand scheme of things and how it will look if he sues that brother outside of the church. Almost ready for our two-minute break, but we have a few minutes. Let's keep rolling. Okay, this is the greatest part of this chapter to me. Go back and I got to read nine again, the list of sinners, sexually immoral, idolaters, homosexuals, uh, thieves, greedy people, drunkards, slandered, swindlers. None of those people will inherit the kingdom of God. Here it comes. You ready? Verse 11. And that's what some of you were. I won't ask for a show of hands for each one of the sins. All the drunkards raise your hand. All the homosexuals raise your hand. But listen, you know what he's saying? And it's probably true in this room and in your church and in mine that you, you can look around a church and think, what am I doing here? If these people knew the life I used to live, they would kick me out of here. But I'll tell you something. You get to know people and you go, you used to do what? Right? Such were some of you. Notice the word were. Past tense. It's not okay if such are some, some of you guys are swindlers and some of you are greedy drunkards and adulterers. No, that doesn't fly because with a new birth where a new creation comes a whole new conduct based on the Holy Spirit living inside of us and the degree to which we submit to him and to God's will in the Bible. We'll have more to say about this verse. Let's take our two-minute break to stretch and make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. They're waiting to see if you'll say hello to them. Those of you on Zoom, I'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Tuesday night Bible study. Find your seats, those of you that are here, and um, we're picking it up right in the middle of uh, 1 Corinthians 6. Do find your seats. Okay, let's look at this verse again. But such were, that is what some of you were, NIV has. That's a message to say, now that you've heard that list, oh, those slanderers, those drunkards, those swindlers, those homosexuals, you know what he's saying? Don't look down your nose at them. Some of you were that. There is no one, listen, there's no one in a Christian church who wasn't a sinner previously. I don't know what your brand of sin was. Maybe it wasn't drugs or alcohol or homosexuality or sleeping around, but there was something. Because if you were perfect, you wouldn't have needed a savior. 
if you were sinless, right? He's saying, here's the change. Such were some of you. And so this is what God did in your life. You did not repent of it and stop it on your own. Impossible. Impossible. So don't look down on them. It's past tense. Don't look back. Um, these things are never to mark the life of a Christian. If you're one of those things and you're calling yourself a Christian, you need to immediately repent. Amen? By the way, are you still awake? Say amen. Amen. Okay, you're not as awake as you were. Okay, but what changed everything, Paul? But you were three things. First, washed. You see it? Implying what? You were dirty. And you couldn't get the dirt off. You were washed. In other words, the way the tense of the verb is, somebody washed you. It doesn't say, but you washed yourself. You cleaned your act up. Wrong. You were washed. And how were we washed? Okay, we could go all through all these. It would probably take the rest of our time. Titus 3, 5, we were cleansed from sin, washed by the mercy, listen, of God. Um, by calling on the name of Jesus Christ, Acts 22. We were washed by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The only way to get rid of sin is if somebody else paid the price. Oh, some of you are eating treats, aren't you? Okay, that's all right. Um, you know, gluttony is a sin. I'm just going to say it. I'm not going to. Just kidding. Just kidding. Okay, washed by the mercy of God, by calling on Jesus' name, washed by the work of Jesus on the cross where he took your punishment and mine. It's astounding. Washed by the word of God. Washed of guilt as we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9. And even there's a baptism reference, which is an outward sign of an inward cleansing that's occurred. Washed. Now listen. How good of a job does your detergent do? It sounds like a commercial. How good of a wash job do you think Jesus did on you? Complete. Okay, well then why am I still struggling with sin A, sin B, and sin C? Whatever they are. Anger, I still can't let this go, or the jealousy, or this. Why? Did Jesus truly wash me? Yes. But we are creatures of habit. I want you to imagine that I am a slave and that I work at a farm and I'm chained by my hand to a pole that's deep, deep into the rock. Got it? And it's a 30-foot, let's say, chain. And I can move in a 30-foot radius, but that's it. And I have things to do. They bring me things that I'm supposed to work on, and I do it within this 30-foot radius, and that's it. I never am free from this. What's the chain? What's the pole in the earth, Joe? Sin. Okay? I can get really close to the pole, or I can get as far away as possible, 30 feet away. I'm not as close as I was, but I'm still a prisoner. Jesus comes along and cuts the chain, frees me, makes me a new creation, and says, get away from there my child. Come with me. Come to church. But wouldn't you know it, a month later, you're looking for me and you can't find me and you, somebody thinks to look and I'm sleeping by the pole. And you go, well, why are you there? I don't know. It just feels more like home back here again, drinking, stealing, sleeping around, drugs, whatever it may be. 
but you're no longer chained. To the extent that you and I submit to the Holy Spirit, we can stay away from that chain and that pole forever. To the extent that we listen to the devil, you don't belong in church with these, look at these holy people. What are you doing here, Joe? Go back to what you used to be. Don't listen. When he calls the devil, you know how you get the little thing? Oh, it's Harry calling. Don't take the call. Refuse the call. Okay. Washed. Beautiful. Next phrase. But you were washed. You were sanctified. The word means set apart. Set apart from the chain and the pole. Set apart from the world. Set apart for a holy purpose by God. If he set you apart for that, don't put yourself somewhere he doesn't want you to be. Now, it's true that sometimes the Bible, not often, but here and a few other places, the Bible says we were, listen, sanctified past tense, right? Normally, people talk about salvation and they say, you know, I'm, I'm an unbeliever and I'm hearing the gospel. He's witnessing to me, Rex is. And eventually I get on my knees and in tears, I come to faith in Christ and I say, I give you my life. At that moment, a person, when they come to faith and are truly saved and believer, they are justified before God. All their sins are forgiven, past, present, future. With me so far? Then usually Christians talk about the lifelong process of being sanctified, where I'm not instantly the Christian I should be on day one. You know, I might still occasionally sin that old way I used to, right? I still occasionally get drunk and okay, but you're sinning less and less and less sanctification. You're doing more good. You're serving in a church more and more and more sanctification. You are even having your tree trimmed. By that, I mean, I'm not hanging around with the people that hung around the chain and the pole because they did the stuff and I, I don't relate to them like I used to. I witness to them when I see them, but sanctification, it's a lifelong process. But in the sense of being set apart, Instantly, we already have been. He's saying, if you've been set apart by God, why are you returning to where you used to be uh, and sinning the same old way? Um, okay, Hebrews 10.10, 10, we're sanctified uh, by Jesus Christ. We're sanctified by God's word, John 17.19, by faith in Christ, Acts 26. We're sanctified by faith and not by works, Romans 3. Um, we already... Uh, we're set apart to a holy life. So real Christians, if you remember nothing else, remember this. Say amen so I know you're awake. Amen. Real Christians don't straddle the fence. I got one foot over here in Christianland around my Christian friends and praise God. And then one foot over here in the world where I can still do the stuff I used to do. Real Christians don't do that. The reason is, with the Holy Spirit living inside of you, God will completely ruin the fun you had on the sinful side of your life. It won't be, you'll be feel so guilty. What am I doing here? He'll eventually pull you back. Even if you backslide in again, he'll pull you back if you're truly saved. Sanctified. Next thing. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. That's the moment you believe, completely forgiven for your sin. By the way, at great cost. 
right? It wasn't just he signed a document and stamped it and went, you're forgiven. He died a bloody, horrible, torturous death on a cross for you and me. That says something. Uh, and I am so indebted to him, I see myself as his, not my own, bought with a price, right? That's going to come up soon too. Um, uh, do we want to get to that yet? No, not yet. Okay, back to the text. The kingdom of God, see it at the end of verse 10? That's God the Father. What's your point, Joe? Verse 11, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Did you see the Trinity there? You know, the Bible never really says the word Trinity, but constantly you see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit involved in creation, in the birth of Christ. Read Luke 2, you'll find the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. There are verses that say the Father raised Jesus from the dead. There's a verse in Romans that says the Spirit of God raised Jesus from the dead. There's a verse, more than one, that Jesus says, destroy this temple, his body, and in three days, I will raise it up. Well, isn't that a contradiction? No, God raised Jesus from the dead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay, that's going to be on the test. Write it down. Just kidding. There's no test. The Trinity in those verses. That's what some of you were before you thumb your nose at those people. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. So why do you want to live the way you used to? Uh, justified in the name of, that's the power of, the authority of, the Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. And by the Spirit of our God, there's the Trinity. Verse 12. I have the right to do anything, you say. Christian freedom. It's a beautiful thing but not everything is profitable or beneficial or worth doing, right? I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Okay, now he's being sarcastic here. These are, he's going to use two common sayings of the Corinthians, of the Greeks, okay? Total freedom. Some of the Greeks believed what I said earlier, that Christianity Worship, religion, spirituality is just the spirit. It doesn't matter what you do with your body, but it matters greatly. Christianity is a, a, a very rare religion. Where Hinduism, the body is evil, and the spirit is good. The body's really important in Christianity. We're going to see that in this chapter and in chapter 12 as well, um, and even, I think, chapter 10. The body's really important. How do you know that? Because our Savior was raised physically, bodily. You will rise from the grave. All believers will rise from the grave physically, bodily. The body's important. What we do with our bodies matter. There's such a thing as sin. There's such a thing as obedience, and there, there's a big difference. So some of them were saying... Um, I've got the I can do all things are lawful for me. A false view of our freedom in Christ. Um, but we're not set free so we can get back to bondage again. I can do anything I want. I'm free from that chain and that pole in the rock over there. Am I so free that I'm going to go attach myself to the pole again? How free is that? We're going to talk about gray areas in a second, and addiction even as well. Um, so it's a false view of our freedom. 
um, but not sin. You can't use liberty as a license to sin. Um, any behavior, listen, anything you're thinking about doing, ask yourself some questions, biblical questions from this passage. Is it helpful? Is it honoring to God, my Lord and Savior? Remember, Lord means boss, master, right? Is it helpful? Is it addictive? Potentially. For some people, not for me. How many people in the world are alcoholics? How many people in the world are drug addicts or sex addicts or pornography addicts or gambling addicts? A lot. Answer this for me. How many of those people decided one point in their life, one morning, I'm going to become an addict? None. Zero. Right? Who would do that? What do you mean? I mean, it's very easy to fall into it. Satan uses these things. We're creatures of habit. Could this be potentially addictive? Could this thing edify me? Would I do this thing? This is a tough one. Boy, when I first became a Christian, this was the one that got me. Would I do this thing on the couch if Jesus was sitting here? Does he have to sit right on the couch with it? Yes. Would you watch that show if Jesus came over to have a sandwich with you? And what's on TV, Joe? Let me check, Lord. Oh, I see you're watching a... Oh, no, that wasn't me that was watching that. Uh, that the whole enslaving thing... Mm-hmm, okay. Uh, comes in where? Verse 12. I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything's beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. If you're a drunk, if you're greedy, if you're an idolater, you've been mastered. And Satan is laughing at you. I got him. I got her. What will tempt you will not tempt the person to your left. And what will tempt the person to your left will not tempt you. Satan's been at this a long time. He's not omniscient, but he's very good at watching people, right? Have anybody ever heard of the book by C.S. Lewis called The Screw Tape Letters? Have you ever heard of that book? Uh, fascinating book. It's one demon writing to another demon some advice about, I got this guy, I'm trying to work on him, and it's, he's going to church now. Okay, you need to try this, and it's very subtle. Have him notice that there's some hypocrites in the church. My old pastor, Pastor Kraft in Santa Cruz, used to say, People that say, I don't want to go to church, there's hypocrites in church. He used to say, would you like to spend 90 minutes once a week with a few hypocrites or eternity with all of them? In any case, um, the Corinthians thought this. Um, This is a 1970s saying, if it feels good, do it. You have that desire He's about to talk about food, right? If you have that desire, you need to feed it. Not necessarily. It's interesting that the word for lust, one of the time, one of the words for lust in Greek is the word epithemia in Greek. You say, that means nothing to me. Me either. Themia is desire. 
Not, not good, not bad. Thamia, I desire something. I desire food, don't you? I desire water. I desire shelter. I desire fellowship with other people. I desire love from people and acceptance. Thamia, desire. Epi, like epic, over desire. Epithemia is an over desire. That's a lust. Example, I desire to earn money and support my family. Thamia, that's fine. Epithemia, I want to have more money than everyone, and I'll do anything to get it. I'll lie, I'll cheat, I'll step on you. Epithemia, I want love and acceptance from people. Desire, normal, God placed that there. No man is an island, right? It's not good for man to be alone. Remember all those verses? That's a thumia. That's a desire. I want love so bad, I'm willing to take it wherever I can get it. Sleep around, male, female, doesn't matter. Epithemia, it's a sin. All sin, listen, is an over-desire. It's Satan drastically amplifying a desire that's normal. I mean, gluttony, we need food. Gluttony is, I want to eat 11 pizzas, right? Watching the Super Bowl. Um, it wasn't 11, but it was a lot. Anyway, um, okay, verse 13. This is saying number two. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So food for the stomach and the stomach for food was a saying. In other words, we have that desire. It's natural. What's wrong with just eating whatever we want? Now, in Christ, it's true. We don't have the kosher diet restrictions the Jews did. They couldn't eat pork, shellfish, all kinds of things. Jews could not have a cheeseburger. Did you know that? You can't have a dairy product touching a meat product. I could never be a Jew for that reason alone. But anyway, we don't have those dietary rules anymore, Joe. I know. But that doesn't mean all things are lawful. Doesn't mean they're all profitable. There are some reasons why you might not eat certain foods. They're not good for you as much as these other foods are, right? Um, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. God will destroy them both. You say, well, he's talking about food there, is he? I don't think so. Look, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality. Wait, I thought he was talking about food. He's talking about the people that say, God gave me this desire. It's God-given. I was, listen to this one, born this way. You ever heard that? God made me this way. I don't think so. I think because of the fall of man, we're all born with a sin nature, and his might be getting drunk, and hers might be stealing, and mine might be lying, or sex, or whatever it might be, doesn't mean we have to obey those desires and get tied to the chain and the pole again, right? The I was born this way thing, this is a strange way to handle it, but sometimes I've talked to people and said, I don't believe that a person was born that way. But let's assume you're right. And Harold here was born a homosexual. That's just his natural propensity. But then again, Jim over here was born into a family of drunks. His great-grandfather was a drunk. His grandfather, grandfather was a drunk. His dad and mom were both drunks. 
Jim was born a drunk. Therefore, it's okay. No, it's not. It's a sin. It's listed as a sin. Harold over, and we already had Harold. Uh, Jeremy over here was born into a family of wife beaters. All the men in the family beat their wives. It's just a natural thing at Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter. We beat our wives. It's kind of fun. What? Some of the ladies are going, let's go. We're leaving. The point is, just because you have a desire for something, it might be an epithemia, an over-desire. We submit to a Lord and his word. Amen? Okay. Let's keep rolling. Um, so sex is an appetite. You've heard that. That's why he's talking about food there. Um, but sex was given to mankind as a gift to be cherished, and it's the most beautiful and most intimate union of two people can have. By the way, somebody on the break was telling me that they heard that there is a movement for allowing women to marry themselves, right? Didn't you just tell me that earlier? Okay, next it'll be a chicken or a horse or a mouse. But anyway, um, sex is an appetite, but it's something that's to be used as a gift and within the bounds God has given us, marriage. If sex was only between two married people throughout planet Earth, how many, and they're married, how many sexually transmitted diseases would we have? No homosexual sex, no sex outside of marriage. How many unwanted pregnancies would there be? Well, there might be some. The husband and wife have nine kids, and they might not want that tenth one. But, you know, if God gave you the tenth one, praise God. Oh, how many do you have? How many, Samuelsons, do you have ten? You have eleven. God bless you. What a wonderful thing. Is Winston the youngest? No. Oh, okay. You're good, Winston. I love it. What a blessing. What a blessing. So the body's not meant for immorality. That's not what God gave it for, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. The, God is for your body in the sense that he's the one that will resurrect it. He's the one that will save it. He's the one that might, if we pray, and you heard me pray before Bible study, might be the one to heal it right? He's certainly the one who created and designed it. Um, so that's not what the body's meant for. Remember, they were separating the spirit from the body. He's saying, no, the body's not meant for sexual immorality. It's not just a, a desire or an appetite. Um, yeah, we already talked about the foods thing. Let's keep rolling. Verse 14, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then, then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? May it never be, or never. In the Greek, it's the never, never, never kind of thing. It's like a triple negative. Um, okay, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead. There's, there's a scripture that says the Father raised Jesus. Remember, we said Jesus raised himself and the spirit raised. But by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, meaning there's value in the body 
and he will raise us also. Guaranteed, if you're a believer. Death is the beginning, not the end. So then he's going to make the analogy in verse 15 about, don't you know that your bodies are the members of Christ himself? Now, there's two ways that this is true. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We are each members or parts of fingers, toes, cells in his body, the holy uh, church of God around the world. We're members of his body. So we are one with him. He lives with us. If we unite ourselves with a prostitute, or it doesn't have to be a prostitute, go sleep with somebody outside of marriage or before marriage, would you take a member of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. What he's saying is the sexual union is a thing that goes far beyond the physical, far beyond enjoyment. It is a somehow mysteriously a real spiritual union where the two become one. Why would you take a Christian body and unite it with somebody outside of marriage or let alone a prostitute? Never. Verse 16, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? They, they didn't see it that way. He's telling them that's how it is. They saw it as, I'm just going there and letting off some steam. It's worship up there at the temple. And it's hard to believe, but these are Christians he's writing to. It doesn't sound like it, but it is. Um, do you not know that another rhetorical question. He who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body. For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Pretty amazing thing. The Bible also presents the condition of unbelievers as being not independent, not football analogy, not free agents that can go to any team they want. I'm just a morally free agent. I'm an unbeliever. The, body, the Bible says, Roman, uh, John 8 and elsewhere, that we were, believers were, all people are, slaves of the devil. Pretty amazing. People don't think that way. They think in terms of I'm a morally neutral person. Sometimes I do good, sometimes I do bad. I know the devil's way over there. I know God's way over there. I'm kind of in the middle and I make my own decisions. If you're not a believer, you're a slave to the devil. Proof, you can't stop sinning. Nobody repents on their own from sinning. I know that there's uh, AA, which is a great or thing, but it's not Christian in a real sense. AA, they pray to a higher power. Have you ever heard that? Just a higher power. Whatever you conceive God to be, okay? That's, he has a name. It's not higher power, right? Higher power who art in heaven, hallowed be, whatever your name is. We know God's name, amen? Uh, The train of thought just completely went off the tracks like it did in Ohio. Anyway, we'll keep rolling. But the highest happiness, the highest fulfillment starts with a union, listen, not between a man and a woman, but between a person, human being, and their creator. From there, he's about to talk in the next chapter about marriage and that some people have a gift, believe it or not, called singleness. It's a gift. The ability to 
not be married, and which frees you up to serve God more. That's, I'm giving away chapter seven. Now you don't have to come next week. Um, but bodily, notice that bodily resurrection is promised in verse 14. There's an eternal purpose for your body. Don't waste it with lust and sensuality. Um, we already talked about that. Um, yeah, we talked about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you are a believer and you have sex with a prostitute, you have sex outside of marriage, all those sexual adultery things, uh, immorality things, excuse me, which includes, and I believe, pornography. Porneia is the word, P-O-R-N, first four letters. It's only here in my eyes and in my mind. No. What does Jesus say? As a man thinketh, so is he. When he's listing sins in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. Remember that? He said, but I say to you, if you even look at a woman to lust for her, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. It's already done. Well, I didn't do the act. I didn't get in bed or anything. It all starts here and here, mind and heart. Okay. Um, so I'm just reviewing here in my notes. Um, they didn't see the connection between the body and the spirit. Uh, yeah, outside of marriage. If, you, if a Christian sins sexually, there's a sense in which it is stealing. You say, I didn't see that one coming. Uh, if I sin sexually before I'm married, I'm stealing from my future wife. If I sin while I'm married sexually, I'm sinning against my current wife, right? Is that it? No, it gets worse. I'm sinning against God, right? Do you remember in the, uh, my favorite story in the whole book, we did Genesis like 10 years ago. Favorite story, the story of Joseph, not because of the name, but because of just his character. There's books written about, there's a hundred ways Jesus represents Jesus Christ. He's a picture of Christ. There's a point at which he is tempted with Potiphar's wife. Do you remember this story? And she comes on to him. Let's just say it in 21st century vernacular. And he runs out of there. Do you remember that? And do you know what he says to her before he runs? How could I do this evil against God? He's not married. I don't think he, at that time. Pretty sure he's not. Um, pretty interesting. Okay, moving on. Um, Whoever is uni united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Verse, six, verse 18. Walk slowly away from sexual immorality. No. Hang around, but don't get involved with sexual immorality. No. Flee. You know what it means? Run. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. Whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. There's a unique aspect to sexual sin we may not fully understand. That's why he says flee. It affects the whole person, body, soul, spirit, mentally, emotionally, physically. Um, we're new creations. We shouldn't be doing that. Don't be hanging around, don't dawdle around sin, don't test yourself, uh, 
I'm just going to this place to just see if I can test myself. Listen, if you have a problem with alcohol, you stay away from bars. If you have a problem with eating too much sugar because you're diabetic or something, you don't go in the bakery just to sniff the cookies. I'm not going to eat, but what, what treats did you guys have that I didn't get? Okay, never mind. Don't walk, run, don't walk. Remember the song, walk, don't run? He's saying run, don't walk. Don't hang around. We talked about Genesis 39, the story of Joseph. How could I, there it is, how could I do this great evil and sin against God? Hebrews 13, 4 says to keep the marriage bed undefiled. Um, we already talked about that. Augustine lived many, many centuries ago in the early times of Christianity. Have you heard of Augustine, one of the early church fathers? Augustine's pet sin was sexual immorality. He writes about it. And it took him a while to completely get away from it. And he had to not go to the neighborhood where it was happening for him. One time after he'd been a Christian for a while, he had to go back to that neighborhood for some reason, business, I don't know, for something. He's there in that neighborhood on the street and down the street and on the other side of the street, or no, on the same side of the street, is one of his old flames that he used to commit sexual immorality with. And she called out to him, Augustine. And he didn't answer. So she yelled louder, Augustine. Nothing. He crosses the street. Augustine, it is I, she says. And he said, I know, but it is not I. It's not me anymore. I'm a new creation. I've been bought with a price. Not me anymore. That old you, you think you see, I'm a new creation. It's not me anymore. It's a beautiful story. Okay, we're out of time. Um, we're going to stop here. Um, almost made it to the end of the chapter, but I want to take time with verse 19. Your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. We got to really talk about that next week. Okay, if you have a question, you can always email me. If you don't get the email that I send after the Bible study that has the link to watch the Bible study online, let me know if you want that and the notes. Anyway, let's pray and we'll get out of here. Lord, thank you for the, the beauty of uh, the gospel, that you do the washing, you do the justifying, you do the sanctification, the changing of us by putting your Holy Spirit in us, having been cleansed. And Lord, to the extent we submit to your spirit, we can avoid these sins, never completely this side of heaven, but we certainly can be sinning less and less and less, and we're less and less comfortable with it, Father. Help us to examine our lives in these lists of sins, whether it's idolatry or drunkenness in some way, or lust, or greed, or whatever it may be, God, create in us that pure heart. Show us our sin. Turn the spotlight up. And then give us the power by your Holy Spirit to abstain from these things. May we never return to the chain and the pole and the rock, God. We're not slaves anymore. We are your servants. We love you. We owe you everything. We pray these things in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
Those of you that are here, make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. That's really important. Those of you on Zoom, God bless you all. We'll see you next time.